Hello and welcome to the Anchor Bible Study Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with our Wednesday evening Bible studies here in this podcast. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Let's get to our lesson. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time to come together and study a little bit tonight about uh, Calvinism and understanding how that matches with your word and how it doesn't. And so, Father, give us wisdom and insight. May the Holy Spirit illuminate us to your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, a little bit more time on Augustine because uh, we're going to look at some scriptures tonight, obviously, and we're going to look primarily at the scriptures that he messed up with infant baptism because it leads into where the five points of Calvinism came from. So you're looking at the guy, the mastermind behind Calvinism. It wasn't John Calvin or Luther or uh, Zwingli or any of those other guys. It was this guy. And, And just to refresh our minds a little bit is that last week we talked about that Augustine, when he first started, everything was copacetic. Everything was fine. His theology was fine. And then we get into a period of time where he kind of disappears. He's there, but he doesn't know writing, and he disappears for about 15 years, we learned. And, and then what we learn is about 412 A.D., 411 A.D., somewhere in that neighborhood, Augustine comes out, and he's totally switched gears, and he's now promoting Stoicism, Manichaeanism, Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, and now his whole doctrine has changed, and he doesn't give an answer why. And again, I, like I mentioned last week, you can speculate on what, what happened. I, I personally think there was definitely some demonic influence in that. Uh, I think uh, dealing with the Pelagians exacerbated that. And I think something happened in his life to where he made a switch. And, uh, you know, as a, as, as a Christian, I think, there's a point in that that you need to understand on a human level that Christians can be going well for some time and then all of a sudden something radically happens to them and they flip a switch or something goes wrong. And I've seen that many times. And obviously with Augustine, he went into apostasy. And the same is true with a lot of now what you're seeing in the world today. So I, wanna, I want you to see that what happened to Augustine is happening today that guys that you used to look to or trust in, you can no longer trust in anymore. They have flipped the switch. Something happened to them, and now they're off on this trail over here, and you're like, what happened to you? Well, you started so good, but now you're not finishing well. You're finishing in apostasy. You're finishing in some goofy stuff, and I can no longer trust you. Well, something, you know, we don't know all the ifs and ands or buts or whatever happens to people, but... Things happen to them that traumatizes people. It causes some something to, to sh- shake up their world. And you don't know what that is sometimes. It's hidden a lot of times. And when that happens, if they're really not on good ground to begin with, okay, that they have deep roots, that trauma has the ability to knock them loose. Okay? Jesus gave the analogy with the, the parable of the soils. Remember that? In Matthew 13, some of the soils fell on rocky ground, some of them fell on ground with weeds, and some of them fell on good ground. 
Okay. So what Jesus is basically saying is there's not only areas of the world that are like this, but there's people's hearts that are like this. And as you can see, three of the four sprouted life, and, and they produced life, so that means they got saved. But as you can see, the people, the, the, heart, the heart that has rocky soil around it, the roots, it will sprout fast, but because the roots are not deep, when the sun comes out, what happens? They burn because the roots are not there. And so that's what starts happening when you see apostasy. Typically, apostasy happens to people whose roots are not solid. Now, let me explain this a little bit deeper. I am not talking that the person is immature in every area of their spiritual life. Okay? I'm talking about they have pockets of immaturity in their spiritual life. They might be good over here, but when you get them in this corner, man, they're like a babe in Christ. You put them over here, and they're very mature. So this is the problem of sanctification, that some parts of us grow faster because we yield those parts to the Holy Spirit, and some parts don't grow because we refuse to yield. Okay? And so those places where we refuse to yield will end up being the area that gets targeted in the trauma or event or whatever happens to us, you know, a divorce, uh, a death of a person or whatever. And so those traumas hit us in those weak areas and that's the area you end up surrendering into false doctrine. That's typically how it works. Okay? So let me explain maybe uh, as an example. Someone gets traumatized when they're very young Let's say they have, they're in their 20s or something like that, and they had a good foundation growing up, biblical foundation, grew up in the church. They understand their doctrine really well, okay? The, the deity of Christ, Trinity, salvation, all this stuff's all lined up, okay? So trauma comes along. Someone does something to them pretty bad, whatever that trauma might be. But one of the things they haven't developed in their walk with the Lord is their understanding of God's providence or God's control, okay? Something they never developed. They've always been told God's in control, but they really never flushed that out to understand theologically the depth of what does it mean that God's in control? What does it mean when God's when God's providence is working? Okay. So they're weak in this area, so when something bad happens to them, this sometimes is the likely scenario. Well, I've been told all my life that God's in control. Therefore, something bad happened to me, so God must have caused that, or he allowed it, and why didn't he step in and stop it? That's called bad theology, but take that theology, and then what does that do to the person? It messes them up in what regards to God. They don't trust God because... You tell me that God's a, a shield, a protector, a place of refuge. I don't believe that because when I was being hurt, God either caused it, according to Calvinism, or allowed it to happen to me because it was part of his decreed will. And so I don't see God as a protector. I see that when, in, when I'm in a relationship with God, that I am extremely vulnerable with him. 
I don't see him as a place of refuge or safety because why would he allow this to happen to me? Boom, person's gone. That little amount is enough to derail a person for the rest of their life. Okay? And you can see how. They get mad at God. Most atheists grew up in a Christian home. Did you know that? And because something happened and some theology wasn't explained to them or they, and they have misunderstandings about theology and they were weak, it set them off into apostasy. And obviously they, they're now self-declared agnostics or atheists or whatnot. And, and so what I want you to see about Augustine is something happened to him. And I don't know what it was, but something happened to him traumatically for him to just do an about face. It doesn't make sense, okay? So you can see this from a modern-day example. Okay, so let's add one more thing further to this because with Augustine's problem here, I think there's something bigger here. I think there's some demonic activity happening with Augustine because he introduced the most insidious doctrines you could possibly imagine and that are still with us today. He, he was, he, of all people, probably second to a, the future false prophet, okay, of all people in church Christendom, this guy did the most damage. Okay? So let's back up a little bit. I think not only was Augustine knocked off the rails on some particular issue, whether he was dealing with the Pelagians or his debates with them or something was knocking him off the rails. Okay. What can happen? And I think you could probably see because of August, Augustine's position in the church as a bishop and things of that nature that he becomes a prime target for the demonic realm. So whatever knocked him off was then capitalized by, I believe, and this is all hypothetical, this is all theory, okay, that they were able to gain a foothold into him according to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, and the foothold could get get in any of us here. We can have a foothold and they can gain access through that foothold to start influencing us and then take us to the different levels that demons can take us into. The first part of your question, we don't have any record of him saying that he received divine information or, you know, like Joseph Smith said, you know, Jesus met him in the forest and gave him new information. There's nothing to indicate that. But that doesn't eliminate the demonic influence. Just because he didn't have that doesn't mean that they didn't use that against him. And, and the second part of your question is, at that time, he was very influential. He was very sharp. And at that time, Augustine was like a cult hero. Because what Augustine was doing prior to this, he was debating heretics. And he was on the circuit, basically, debating heretics. And because he was doing that for the church, everyone loved him. Everyone was applauding him, saying, he's fighting the good fight for the church. So he became a church hero. And so that church hero then switches. So let's get some specifics here. His Manichaeanism, his Stoicism, and we're not going to read all these texts, so I'm just going to do some, some blips here. Because of that, that background, he defaulted back into that background of Greek philosophy and started interpreting, and this is where it started, okay? 
interpreting that Adam's fall created in us a guilt that we were condemned for the moment we were born. Okay? That's not out of the Bible. That comes from Manichaean interpretation of spiritual damnation. Okay? Gnosticism is, and Manichaeanism basically is the same thing. And what they believe in Manichaeanism is that due to the physical birth, then you inherit damnation from Adam's sin. Okay? Okay, so let's parse that out a little bit. You have probably heard, unfortunately, in your Christianity, people saying that when Adam sinned, you were either federally in him or seminally in him when he sinned. And therefore, because you were seminally in him or federally under him, that his guilt was passed on to you and that you and I are condemned from the womb. Okay? Maybe you didn't hear it. Maybe that's a good thing if you didn't hear that. But a lot of churches will teach double condemnation. So if you accept Manichaean Gnosticism that people are condemned from the time of birth, how do you fuse that with Christianity? What do you think Augustine did? Well, I can tell you the real easy fix for this from Christianity, and while he made this try to fit in, was then he then went to baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration to get rid of original sin, as he called it. And that baptismal regeneration would take away original sin, the guilt of original sin. Well, then you have a problem, okay? Before this, what was happening in the Christian church, the Orthodox church, as we'll call it, and that's, when I'm talking about Orthodox church, I'm not talking about the, the today's Orthodox church. I'm talking about the church before the Catholic church was called the Orthodox church. In the Orthodox church, what they basically held to was that you were a sinner, you were condemned for that, but then when Augustine brings his notions in from Stoicism and Manichaeanism and Gnosticism, he then adds this, this double condemnation. Okay, as that's going on, another thing in church history is happening concurrently, or even before this. They believed, obviously, at the beginning of baptizing adults, that had come to faith, okay? That was generally how the church went on for several years, or several hundreds of years, okay? Then, when Augustine puts this thing in about double condemnation, that you're condemned from the time you were born, well, that brings an interesting thing about being baptized if you believe in baptismal regeneration. What then happens to babies and children who we are putting baptism off until they understand what baptism is later on through catechism, and we're baptizing later on in life, but what if they die before that? And that caused a dilemma for the church at that time. So then Augustine, through his theology that he's developing, said, well, then what we need to do then 
is we need to start baptizing babies. Did he, as you'll see, he misinterpreted scriptures and poured different meanings into them. And I'll show you in just a bit, which is classic for every cult. And what does God promise to anyone who adds or subtracts from scripture? You're going to get judged. Right? All the plagues of, of the revelation, right? If anyone adds or subtracts. Well, Augustine started adding and subtracting. Now, adding and subtracting may not be what you think it is. It's not necessarily adding verses. It's pouring into the scripture different meanings. That's adding and subtraction, which the cults do. They'll read a word, and it doesn't mean what it means. They'll reinterpret the word, if that makes sense, or reinterpret the context. So Augustine starts doing that to fit his theology. So he puts his theology first and then reinterprets scriptures. So then here's what happens. This will blow you away because you think, this is crazy. So Augustine, they come up with the idea, okay, we're going to baptize infants then because of, of this double condemnation. We've got to get them baptized, okay? So they start dunking babies. They're still practicing immersion, okay? They're practicing immersion, still practicing immersion, like the old days, like we do in baptism, but they start doing it with babies, okay? They start dunking the babies underwater. And guess what happened? The mamas started getting mad. And it was the moms in the early church that changed from water immersion of babies to why don't you sprinkle? <laughs> no joke, man. No joke. It wasn't because they were deriving this from some theology, some scripture. It was because the moms were so mad about the church dunking their babies that they switched it for the moms said we can sprinkle. And to this day, they still sprinkle. And that comes from not theology, but angry moms. <laughs> now, isn't that crazy? And when you start looking at church history, you start seeing these things and you sit there and scratch your head and you're like, what are you talking about? You changed the whole paradigm of the word baptism to fit babies, but then to please the moms. Oh my goodness. Ah, good question. We're going to get to that. So you're, you're going right where we're going. Right. Okay. So therein lies the objectors to this in Augustine's day. So guess what Augustine came up with? Proxy faith. Proxy faith. Okay, every good Catholic knows this. If you're an ex-Catholic, you should know this. So when you were baptizing your baby in the Catholic Church, you obviously know that baby can't believe because faith is required to believe, right? You have to be an adult. You have to, not an adult, but you have to be age of accountability. You have to know right and wrong, responsible. And then you're baptized in, 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 as obedience, right? Okay, how does a baby who doesn't even know they're, they're aware of themselves, not a, doesn't understand they're a sinner, have the guilt of Adam or anything of that nature, how do they believe? And so the question became to Augustine, well, what, what are you talking about? How can the baby believe? Why, can you, why can't you baptize a baby? He says, it's the faith of the parents. We'll baptize them based on the faith of the parents, and, that will, and then they develop proxy faith. You can believe for the baby. 
And to this very day, it's still with us. Right? I don't know. But here's what I want you to see, though. Notice how I've taken you on a trail. I take one step, and I'm in error. And then to fix this error, I have to take another step in error. And then to fix that error, I have to take another step in error. You see how that works? Truth always stands alone. It doesn't need to be propped up. Lies always need more lies to support it. And you have to keep building a network or a web of lies to keep the original lie going. And what was the original lie? The original lie is that you're condemned for Adam's sin. That's a lie. You are not condemned for Adam's sin. That we're in, made in the image of Seth? I, I haven't, they might have said that, but I haven't seen Augustine make that point. Maybe he did. I, I, I haven't seen that. But what they really did is that he took Gnosticism and blended it into Christianity and created the doctrine called original sin, which is not found in the Bible. Now, let's unpack that theologically to understand what we're talking about. Did you inherit anything from Adam? Yes, the sin nature. Okay. You did inherit the sin nature. Okay. That's true. But inheriting the sin nature will then do what to you, though? Well, be careful. Be careful about the spiritually dead thing. You're born separated from God? What is dying you shall die? Is it spiritual death? Wait, wait, wait. When does spiritual death occur in an individual, though? If a baby dies before the age of accountability, why aren't they going to hell? Because in Calvinism, they are. When you become aware of your sin and consciously sin, then when you do sin, you spiritually die. Is that correct? Because you've got to get this one correct. You've got to make sure you understand that you're different from a Calvinist. Because a Calvinist believes... That sin nature condemns that child, and if that child dies before re coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that child's going straight to hell. So, in your inheritance from Adam, you did, we can all say, we inherited the sin nature. No doubt about that. But, does the sin nature then condemn you? What condemns you, though? Rejecting the Messiah and His work, Right? So when do you spiritually die? At birth? You're already, well, you're already dead, whether or not you, you as an adult, reject or, or, re, or accept Messiah. You're dead at that point. But what does dead mean? Separation. Yes. So why aren't they condemned for the sin nature? They don't. They're born with it. You inherit the sin nature from Adam. But how come they? How come a kid will automatically go to heaven before the age of accountability, even though he has a sin nature? They what now? Okay, so then are they condemned for having a sin nature? No, but, he, but from a Calvinist, what Augustine ended up coming, let me go a little further, coming up saying is that they 
they said the same thing to him as you are saying. This was his answer. They're like, well, what if the mom can't get the baby to the church to get baptized in time to wash away original sin and get the kid in a state of grace? What do we do then? Because they got to the point, J.D., where moms were literally baptizing and sprinkling their babies as they came out of the womb. That's how extreme it got. Okay, Because they were so afraid if that baby dies that they're going to go to hell. So then, okay, so then what was happening? Mothers couldn't get their children fast enough to the church to be baptized, and some of them, a great majority of them, died. You remember, infant mortality in the Middle Ages was what, like 50%? They didn't have successful birthing like we do. A lot of them died. And so they would rush over as fast as they could uh, to the, the priest, to the church, get this, this kid baptized, and on the way, many of them died. Because it was just too far away, it was a long journey, whatever, it couldn't make it. Everything's on horseback or walking. So the child would die. Do you know what Augustine then said about the children who make it to baptism and don't make it to baptism? Take a guess, but here it is. He said, it is the providence of God that if a child makes it into the baptistry, then it was God's providence to save that child. And if the child dies before being baptized, then it is the providence of God that that child was never to be saved anyway. Thank you very much, Augustine, for that wonderful rendition of Gnosticism. But that's what he said. So it, it, to him, it, he dismissed the case by saying, well, if God lets it happen, then that child is saved. If he doesn't, then that child's in hell. That's how he solved the problem. Right, what do you do then? What do you do then? Well, again, it depends on what Calvinists you're talking to. Some are more moderate Calvinists, and they would say, no, that baby goes to heaven. Like a John McCarthy would say it goes to heaven. But the hardcore, consistent Calvinists would say, well, because they died in the womb or they died before reaching the age of accountability, then that child is in hell because they will fall back on saying, what, is it, what does the scripture say about being saved? Believe. And if that child doesn't reach the point where they can believe, then they go to hell. And to, in their minds, I know this is crazy, J.D., I know it's crazy, but in their minds, that's consistent Calvinism. Okay, because they didn't believe. So they must be providentially planned like that because they never were going to believe. And that's why they died or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I think, right? Yeah, I think you're, there's something happened here. It's very demonic, right? Very demonic. Yeah, you're right on. You got it. So let's go to the next page. Because you're talking about Romans 5.12. It is true, but let's, let's understand what it means to be in Adam. Romans 5.12, you see on the back page? Okay, let's read that together. Augustine also misinterpreted Romans 5.12. And it says this, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus... What spread to all men? Death spread to all men because does it say in whom, Adam, we all sinned? Because the Latin, unfortunately, because, by the way, did you know this? 
Augustine didn't know Greek. That's a big problem. That's a big problem. So when he was reading these texts, he, he learned Greek later on, but he hated, he hated Greek. He knew Latin, and a lot of the texts were Latin. So here's what happened here. I underlined because all sinned. Isn't that consistent with Paul? All have sinned? What does it have to do with Adam, though? Okay, let's continue on. Read this. The scholarly literature contains numerous discussions of the Latin mistranslation of Romans 5.12, which Augustine was using. Here is the mistranslation. As in whom all sinned, in Q, which, which is Latin, versus the New Testament Greek, which says because all sinned, and that is epihas. Epihas in your in the Greek there. It means because or for that. So, if all people sinned in Adam, in whom, using the Latin, then all people are guilty at birth. And that's what Augustine came up with because of using the Latin instead of the Greek. Instead of seeing the words epihas, he used the Latin in Q. Okay, let's continue on. But Augustine did not know Greek until later in his life. He upheld this mistranslation as his definite proof after inventing his Manichaean Christian doctrine of separation from God at birth with all humanity damned by the guilt of Adam's sin. Traditional original sin with physical death because epihas, or because, or for that, all sin now became Augustinian original sin with spiritual death from Adam, in whom all sinned, in, in Q, in whom. So the traditional interpretation that all died physically as a consequence of Adam's sin transformed into the Manichaean Augustinian view that all sinned in Adam so every human is therefore spiritually dead, guilty, and damned at birth. And Calvinists teach that today. So, a mistranslation based on the Latin is what got Augustine in trouble, but I don't know if he even cared. He used that mistranslation, and as you can read, the, the correct translation is a New King James. What does the text say came from Adam? and spread to all men. Death. What kind of death? Physical death. We die because of the sin nature that's been passed on to us. That's why physically we're dying right now. Okay? That's why I can say that's the reason babies or children die. They physically die, don't they? Right? You can't deny that. But is, are they dying because of their, of their guilt or condemnation? No, they're dying because they have inherited a sin nature. Now, even though they inherit a sin nature, just using children as an example, if they die before the age of accountability, and we'll talk just a little bit about that, that is, that doesn't prevent them from going to heaven. So they're under no condemnation because they wouldn't be allowed into heaven. David could not say, 
I can't, he can't come to me, but I will go to my child, right? He couldn't say that. So David even knew this, by the way. David understands that you're born into this world not under condemnation and not because of being damned from birth. So that, that is why we believe in the age of accountability. And that's why we say children and, and, and mentally handicapped people or whatnot who don't know their right from their left, are not conscious of sin, and commit sin per se, knowingly do it, are allowed to go to heaven because they're not under that condemnation. Okay, tell me then the implications then for the age of accountability then. There's no doubt death spread to us because of the sin nature. It spread to everybody. And everybody's dying. But then, the condemnation, then is because all sin. Now, there's no doubt the sin nature makes you want to sin, makes you want to do wrong, makes you want to disobey, makes you want to do these things. But until you reach that age, age of accountability and you're conscious of sin and right and wrong, and then you go commit it, then you're held accountable. And according to Romans 5.12, at that point, you too have sinned just like Adam. And then now you too are what? Condemned. You are now condemned because you personally took it upon yourself, knowing right and wrong, and willfully chose to disobey the Creator. Hence, that one sin is now sending you into condemnation. And unless you come to faith in the Messiah... You, can, you will be condemned, and that road will start, obviously. And it will be a life of more and more sin, obviously, and, and whatnot. Okay, let me stop there real quick. Any questions about that? Yes. So you have to put these two together. Because if you take verse 18 in isolation, it could say what the Calvinists wanted to say. But then when you combine it with verse 12, it, verse 12 is saying something different. So when you add in, in all Adam... Go ahead and read that passage again. That's right. So based on what we just saw in Romans 5.12, how did the condemnation come to us through Adam? What did Adam pass on to us? His guilt? You're not guilty for Adam what he did. The Calvinists have the federal head and the seminal views. That you were in Adam, and when Adam sinned, you sinned. Now, or they had the federal, he represented you, and because the federal had sinned, then you sinned. And that's how the, the Calvinists interpret this passage. But if you add the context, then 5.12 is telling me how the condemnation comes to me. Yes, Adam passed the sin nature on. And what will that sin nature want to do? Sin. Once it gets less, let loose out of the corral, I will sin and it will bring condemnation upon me. So yes, in that sense, in Adam, I do end up being condemned because I follow the dictates of the sin nature eventually, and I do that. And then obviously going into Christ relieves me of that. But that is the only way you can interpret that properly without saying that you're condemned at birth. I have a question, somebody. Oh, there was, I heard it. Go ahead. I'll get to you, John, in just a second. To rebel. Well, you're already going to die because of the sin nature. 
But that brings condemnation, yes. Yes, spiritual death. So, I don't think it's accurate to say, theologically, that a baby is in a state of spiritual death because they're not condemned. How do you get into spiritual death? When you consciously sin against God, knowing right and wrong, and then that you die at that point spiritually. You're separated from God because of your known sin. But this is the only thing that makes sense with children and babies is that they're not spiritually dead per se. They might have a sin nature, and they're, they're, maybe they're, they, they don't have a, a new nature like we do, but it doesn't condemn them. Because if it does, then you have to resort to being a Calvinist, if that makes sense. So what happens in Catholicism and what developed out of what Augustine was teaching here is that if you could get the person, the child baptized, it would then put them on neutral ground with God because it took away original sin. But it doesn't mean necessarily they're saved. It means they're on neutral ground with God. And at that point, they have to follow in line doing the other well, sacraments, the baptism will be, the, will be one, and then the other six they would have to do and follow through with that until the day they die. So the next sacrament would be Eucharist, then after that it would be confirmation, then after that would be matrimony, and then after that would be deaconship, and then after that, uh, I forget the other one, and then the last one is last rites. And you would have to have all seven sacraments to, to assure yourself that you're going to heaven. That's it. Confession, penitence. Yeah, thank you. I know. Right. Right. Yeah, and I, 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 I agree. And, and I did the same thing, doing all these things and crowning Mary and all this other stuff and saying the Hail Mary and rosary and all this other stuff. And all it was, as you know, is a works-based salvation. I was working to keep my salvation and maintain it, basically. Well, there you go, yeah. And I'm sure that's a superstition that that grew up in the Catholic Church or whatnot because of this fear that in the you know in the 400s these moms rushing to the church to get their babies baptized. I'm sure, you know. Yes, John. Sorry. Well, they say what Augustine said. Um, I don't know if I have it in your notes. Do I? Which page? Bottom of the first page? Yeah, I, I knew I, I put it in somewhere. Okay, so to answer your question, let's read that. Is it the okay, second paragraph, right? All the way down the very... Ah, here we go. Yeah, there it is, there it is. Okay, so like I said, let's start. He invented a proxy salvation whereby one person can believe for another so that the infant being baptized need not believe in Christ. Personal faith was no longer required. Okay, Augustine invented a new doctrine. When asked about the thief on the cross, John, this is your question, he dreamed up the thief was baptized when Christ's own water and blood from the spear splashed basically on him. Now that's, that's I mean seriously, man, that's ridiculous, right? That is absolutely the most ridiculous statement, but he went with it. And you know what happens when you're at the top? People say, you know what Augustine said? That must be true. It's golden. And you know, they went with it. Now, you, you're, you're sitting here in the 21st century saying, 
wow, that's crazy, man. What was this dude thinking? Okay, right? But at the time, man, this guy spoke like a, with a golden tongue. Everything he said was right. And people believed it. And so it was adopted like that. That's what, so there's your thing, John. He said it splashed on them. What's, and, and go back to Jim saying, what scripture is that? I don't know. I don't know because it's not in the Bible, right? And that's the problem with cults. That's the problem with doctrines of demons, right? You can't find things attached to that with scripture. It's just made up. Crazy stuff. Okay. What's that? Yeah, the Mormons do proxy faith as well, right? So nothing's really changed. The Mormons baptize for people for the dead, even. They're dead. And yeah, you, the Mormons baptize. That's why, that's why Ancestry.com and all these Ancestry are Mormon owned. Did you guys know that? It's all Mormon owned. If you start going back and you know, you know why they started Ancestry.com and all these other things? Because they're baptizing for their genealogy. So they're real good on the archives of finding your genealogy because they want to do proxy salvation for people that are dead. They do proxy salvation. And hopefully in Mormon, again, this is Mormon theology, J.D., so it's not like, don't try to understand it. You know what I mean? It's, it's, their, it's their nonsense. So, yes, they could get that person out of hell if they got baptized for him and believed because they believe in proxy baptism. In some ways, with purgatory, yes, absolutely. You can pray him out. Well, think about this, Roseanne, and all you ex-Catholics. The Pope, a couple years ago, went out and said, if you follow him on Twitter, he'll give you more time out of purgatory. Do you remember that? He, he literally said that, and he, you know, instantly his Twitter feed, like, became the most in the world within, like, 10 hours. And he said, literally, if you follow me on Twitter, I'll get you more time out of purgatory. Now, yeah, prayers for the dead. Uh, we had masses, and the mass would be for dead people. This mass is being offered for, uh, Joe Blow, and, you know, Joe Blow's been gone for 20 years, but his, his, his family is wanting us to offer a mass for him. And when the mass got offered, he, he would get more time out of purgatory. And lighting candles, right, to get them out or whatever. The what now? Requiem masses, right? Right. And then, you know, and you know this well, guys, then the Catholic Church got into the money business. And then they said, hey, look, Tetzel went around all through Europe and said... When the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory, purgatory springs. And he made it a... He, this is how the Vatican assumed tons of money. Because they said, look, you got a loved one in purgatory, man. That's the default for everybody. You want them out of there, right? Yeah, well, start giving. And how much? I don't know, man. But you just got to keep giving. And you know what? There was never any end because you never knew. When the guy sprung out of purgatory. So it became a money machine. Huge amounts of money because of that. <laughs> to the netherworld, to, to yeah, the underworld, yeah. It's stuff like that. It's like, where did you guys get that, man? It's just paganism, you know? And bingo, yeah, I mean, 
They had no problem. Catholic Church has no problem with bingo and raising money, man, or gambling or anything like that. That's right. So anyway, go ahead, Jim. Uh-huh. Oh, man. Oh, man. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. They're fleecing the sheep, man. Oh, yeah, it's always about money. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing. Um, you, they exploit the poor. And, you know, it's sad because it, that's where spiritual abuse comes in. When you say, look, you've got to give to your relatives to get them out of purgatory. And these poor people, you don't have anything and you're just robbing them. Oh, boy, that's a, that's a major problem. But this is why I want you to know this. The Vatican is the wealthiest institution on planet Earth. There is nothing that comes close to the Vatican. Nothing. They have so much treasure. Gold, silver, things going back to the Middle Ages, you know, from the conquistadores and, and you know, all the raids they did on different places and, and all this other stuff. They say how much gold and precious things that they have is incalculable. Incalcul Am I saying that right? You, there's, you can't put a number on it. And therefore, it is the wealthiest organization on planet Earth. Now, let me ask you this. You think Satan doesn't know that? You think because they have one head... That all Satan needs to do is corrupt the one head and he can control the entire tail of the serpent. If you control the head, you control the whole body. So don't, don't discount that this Pope, this Pope guy, with the power and the money behind him, that's a pretty serious evil dude. And he's very powerful. He comes off like a lamb, doesn't he? But he speaks like a dragon. You better watch that one. Pray to get you out of here. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Anchor Bible Study Podcast. We hope that this lesson is a blessing to you and helps grow you towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has another podcast called Anchor Sunday Sermons and it's filled with past and present messages in Revelation, Genesis, and Exodus. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear it, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services for the Anchor Sunday Sermons. Support for both of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up, for our redemption draws nearer.